pesar que, que tenía dos años, pero tengo. Even though I was only two years old, I hid when I saw the plane passing. I hid, I hid in the mountains. We stayed in the caves when the planes passed. My parents left and I remember, I still remember when we walked through the forest. Even though I was only two years old, I remember. We walked through the mountains. There weren't pathways through the mountains. Because if we walked in the pathway, they would see you, so you couldn't walk there. There weren't many people. Everyone left. What I said. Yes, the forest and the mountains and the grass. Welcome to the Global Inquirer, where we take a look at intriguing case studies that help explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Nico Marsage. And today I'm joined by Tyler Hinkle, a researcher at the Global Inquirer and a Latin American Studies and History major. Tyler, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Nico. So at the outset of the episode, you heard from a Guatemalan migrant who at the age of two was forced to take this perilous journey from Guatemala to Mexico. In this episode, to explain the broader trend of opposition to immigration and ethno-nationalism and the detrimental effects of corruption in law enforcement agencies, we're going to take a look at the history of U.S. intervention and U.S. foreign policy in Guatemala and the Central America, and how it's manifested itself in 2014 and today on Mexico's southern border. So since we're talking about U.S. foreign policy in the region, Tyler, can you offer a little bit of historical background to U.S. foreign policy in Guatemala? Yeah. So Guatemala is actually, there's a lot of history there with U.S. intervention and the country. Um, A lot of it dates back to the 1950s when the CIA backed a coup with the Arbonne's government. What was going on there was the U.S. had a lot of interest with the United Fruit Company in the the country, which owned a lot of the property, uh, a lot of capital there. And Arbonne's wanted to nationalize all of this. Of course, you know, the U.S. is like completely against this. They see it as like socialist and they, you know, they get rid of them. And so because of that, you know, the people's voices have been muffled. Um, And then come in the 80s, we see the people trying to, you know, speak up again. We see this dialogue between the right and left. And the U.S. once again steps in and backs the right wing like military groups who are going around killing anybody who looks like they might be a sub- like a subversive um, socialist kind of um, against like what's going on, like the, the preset standards for what's going on. Um, so they're going up into the highlands, killing the Mayans and getting rid of anyone who's talking about share of wealth, redistribution of land, social reform, um, any of these policies that, that the U.S. deems as socialist or leftist. And again, you'll hear from that same Guatemalan migrant talk about his experience at the age of two when the military was bombing his village. And so why did you all leave the country? Because it was being bombarded. Who? The army of Guatemala. So you really left out of emergency? Yes, out of emergency, because they arrived and started to bomb, and we left. Even though I was only two years old, I hid when I saw the plane passing. I hid, I hid in the mountains. We stayed in the caves when the planes passed. And that brings us into the more recent changes on Mexico's southern border with Guatemala. And here we sit down with Mr. Adam Isaacson, 
an associate at the Washington Office of Latin America who focuses on security issues in the region. And in this first answer, he talks a little bit about the current landscape since 2014 on Mexico's southern border with Guatemala. Um, you know, the main thing that has changed is in 2014, uh, there was a big wave of unaccompanied kids um, from all three of the northern Central American countries, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, who pretty much overwhelmed uh, U.S. border authorities, especially in South Texas. Um, you went from just um, um, a couple of thousand unaccompanied kids per year all of a sudden to about 60,000, um, and they had just even nowhere to put them. And you, you might have remembered around around May or June of 2014, this was front page news, you know, leading the TV news for a couple of weeks because it was just these bizarre images of children like just sitting cross-legged on the loading dock of the Border Patrol station because they had nowhere else to put them. Um, and because of that, um, President Obama um, and, and other you know, top officials started putting a lot more pressure on Mexico to do more about the flows of migrants uh, from Central America um, into Mexico and, and then, of course, across Mexico into the United States. And um, the real choke point there was the Mexico-Guatemala border. Uh, where almost everybody there had gone. And before 2014, um, Mexican authorities certainly put up some effort to uh, detain and deport Central American citizens who were on Mexican soil, but you did not have the same level of uh, uh, checkpoints, uh, patrols, and sweeps. And those Central Americans who chose to migrate on top of the train lines, uh, the cargo trains that the Mexican Mexicans tend to call La Bestia, pretty much did so unhindered. Um, in response to U.S. pressure, um, in middle of 2014, Mexico instituted something called the Plan Frontera Sur, the, the Southern Border Plan, um, which in the end was not a huge crackdown, but it certainly increased the number of roadblocks and checkpoints along main roads. Uh, there was much more of an effort to keep uh, people from riding on top of the trains, and there were more patrols and sweeps and people being detained and sent back as quickly as possible. Um, this Plan Frontera Sur sort of ignored the reasons that a lot of Central Americans were leaving, which frankly is an out-of-control gang problem and the worst homicide rates in the world, um, the, the peacetime world anyway, and, uh, but this, and often ended up sending people back to their danger. But that... Um, changed the climate somewhat at, at the at the Mexico-Guatemala border. It made it a lot harder for migrants to try to make the trip, at least for a while. Um, it is, uh, by, by 2016, a lot of this migration had recovered and Plan Frontera Sur didn't end up making a huge difference in the end, um, but it has certainly forced people to take different routes. Mm -hmm. And so you touched on a little bit about what the driving forces were of uh, what, what drove the Central American migrants out of their countries. But can you go into a bit more detail about the gang violence and, and some of the other factors that might have driven the Central American migrants out of uh, like Honduras and Nicaragua and Guatemala? Absolutely. And yeah, this is something sort of new. I mean, uh, the, for most of the last few years, the majority, and this is amazing, the majority of migrants uh apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border um, are not Mexican, which is, uh, uh, when you think about the, the closest country to the Mexico border, uh, other than Mexico, is about 800 miles away, that the majority would not be Mexican is pretty remarkable. And and almost all of the, that majority is, is from Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, um, where, especially in Honduras and El Salvador, uh, there's been a real breakdown 
of, of public security. I mean, these, these countries suffered uh, civil wars, not Honduras, although they certainly suffered the implications in the 1980s, um, in which, which caused a large population of uh, people to leave those countries as refugees and come to the United States in the 80s. Of that population, um, many of them settled in U.S. cities like uh, Los Angeles in particular, where um, young people who lived there, in order really to protect themselves from U.S. gangs and especially Mexican-American gangs, formed their own street gangs. Uh, they called them Mara Salvatrucha, Barrio 18. These just referred to the 18th Street Gang uh, in, in, in Los Angeles. Um, and they formed to protect themselves. Now, a lot of these gang members then um, got captured and deported from the United States, sent right back to their own countries where they set up uh, their own branches of these gangs in the 1990s. Um, these gangs very quickly uh, grew to huge degrees of brutality in a context of uh, endemic police corruption and weak justice systems and no real um, uh, job or education opportunities. They exploded, especially in Salvador and to some extent in Honduras, um, taking over cities, taking over neighborhoods, uh, taking over mo most petty crime, extortion, uh, carrying out death threats, uh, killing um, uh, enemies with extreme brutality. Um, uh, and it's gotten to the point where for instance, in 2015, El Salvador's homicide rate in the entire country was more than 100 murders per thousand people. One in a thousand Salvadorans were killed just in 2015, mainly because of this phenomenon. And the gangs are, you know, avidly recruiting new members. Uh, anybody who's an adolescent of school age, often schools are one of the least uh, safe places you can be. Uh, parents worry. Small businesses can't function because of the exorbitant extortions they're paying. So people have been leaving in great numbers. And a lot of these people, um, going back to the 80s, uh, had at least relatives uh, in the United States. A lot of parents sent for their kids. A lot of families went uh, to find relatives to, to, to live with. And according to a 2008 law passed in the United States, uh, which is designed to combat uh, human trafficking, any child who comes to the United States unaccompanied um, and they're not from a contiguous country are automatically assumed to be a possible trafficking victim. And they are automatically assigned a date uh, before a judge to hear um, their asylum uh, claims uh, and what, what, what if they feel threatened. And that, of course, got backlogged very quickly. So most of the children who came here in 2014, their court date or their date for their hearing is still probably still coming, maybe next year, maybe 2019, which means, you know, they've gotten to spend their most vulnerable years here in the United States in relative safety. But that also has been a draw for a lot of parents who may be sending for kids or parents traveling with kids who sometimes get detained while they await an, an asylum decision, sometimes not. They get to stay with relatives. It's actually kind of arbitrary. But because of that, um, you know, that, that the gang problem has, has really um, been the main driver. Obviously, there is poverty. Um, in Guatemala's highlands, there's even hunger. Um, there's, you know, the, uh, a booming construction industry here in the United States, as well as agricultural work that does pull a lot of people. And quite often, there's a mixture of threats and economic desperation that pushes people. But what has brought Central American numbers into the stratosphere is this epidemic of violence that really got bad in the 90s, worsened a lot in the mid-2000s, and has been breaking records in the last few years. Right. I mean, I think it's definitely important to note that these aren't, you know, just economic migrants. You know, they're leaving these countries for humanitarian and like safety concerns. Um, and then so jumping 
back to sort of the Mexico southern border plan. What have been the effects of, of militarizing Mexico's border? Because in theory, you know, if you have gang violence, you would think that um, by providing more military and security on the border that, you know, conditions would be safer for Mexicans to go on the train routes like La Bestia <coughs> north through Mexico. Well, Mexican migrants are, are do are, do travel pretty safely uh, because, you know, they've got a Mexican ID card everywhere they go in Mexico and people can't mess with them. If you're a Central American migrant passing through Mexico, though, you're seeing a much different Mexico than you or I would if we were visiting Chiapas and going to, you know, the pyramids and Palenque and everything. If you're riding on the trains or if you're in a vehicle um, headed northward, um, Mexican authorities might not uh, be driven by a, a, a huge animus against migrants, like they really hate Central Americans and want to send them back, like you might see sometimes with U.S. authorities. Um, but what they see, um, because corruption is so endemic and unpunished, what they see when they see a migrant quite too, all too often is a chance to shake somebody down. Um, somebody with, uh, uh, you know, traveling with money, because uh, you have the power to deport them and send them way back on their journey. Although, you know, for a hundred bucks, maybe they can keep going if you, and no one will ever know that you took that money. So there's way too much of that um, robbery um, and assault and, 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 you know, related assault and cruelty that goes along with that. Meanwhile, of course, organized crime groups in Mexico um, see the same opportunity uh, to rob, to extort, and very frequently, uh, perhaps as many as 20,000 times a year, we don't have good figures, to kidnap them for ransom and hold them in safe houses and shake down their relatives in the United States to wire money to them. Uh, before they can be let go. Um, so that was bad before uh, the southern border uh, plan happened. It was in 2010 that the San Fernando massacre in, in, right up near the U.S. border of Texas uh, uh, killed 72 migrants. Um, but it got it, it did not change with the southern border plan. More security forces did not mean that uh, migrants would be safer. In fact, it meant it was harder to travel on the roads and on the trains, as I mentioned. And with more roadblocks and more presence, it, f it has forced a lot more migrants to take different routes. Uh, slower roads, if they're lucky, sometimes having to get out and walk remarkable distances. Uh, uh, for instance, you know, clear across Chiapas into Oaxaca, uh, sometimes taking uh, uh, the, the Pacific Ocean route on, on flimsy boats. Um, but most often, I think, is the a combination of driving and walking. Your smuggler will drive. They'll say there's a checkpoint up ahead. You've got to walk around it. And boy, those rural areas around the checkpoints where all the uh, anybody who's looking to assault and rob migrants knows they have to walk this way and they're unguarded and the police don't do anything because they're, you know, in cahoots with organized crime. Those are very dangerous places to walk. So that's that's one of the main ways that conditions have changed and that security for Central American migrants has not improved at all and perhaps gotten worse. I think that, you know, the, 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 there's not good record keeping because usually the, wor the worst thing about it is if you're robbed, if you're a Central American who's robbed, or you can't go to the police to report it. So you don't have good record keeping. Uh, you go to the police, they'll say, oh, you don't belong here. You have to go back. So you're not going to report it and you're just going to um, do the best you can. Rape of uh, Central American women is so common that very often uh, when they start the journey, girls and women will take contraceptives on the way because they're so certain that it's going to happen. They don't want to get pregnant. And so Mr. Isaacson will discuss this in more detail, but in that previous response, he started to touch on the fact that the corruption between the law enforcement agencies and the gangs often exists at a very local level. So uh, a lot of times, like with the local groups, is like the local groups can sometimes like team up with some of the gangs or, or the cartels. 
um, and that's how like they can get backing. Um, and so really what's what's happening with that is that it's it's really like legitimacy of of the gangs there and the cartels, whereas with the national military, um, they don't want to do anything. So they're like they're turning their back to this corruption. It's often at the local level. I mean, it's it, there's the higher up you go, the less hard it is to prove that you know the overall head of the armed forces or whatever is is in league with organized crime. Although there have been cases of generals um, uh, being corrupted. Um, one, how would I explain this? Um, at the local level, well, one way it's described often is uh, in the the Spanish saying, which if you've seen Narcos, you've seen this plato o plomo. It's very real. Um, a narco or a human trafficker or somebody in charge of an extortion network, um, they really can't operate unless they have uh, cooperation from the from the local government, uh, from the local security forces, because they, they can easily shut them down otherwise. Um, the way to guarantee control over your um, dominion there is uh, to share the wealth, but also to make sure that those who give you problems uh, face retribution. Um, and so your average Mexican policeman uh, who makes literally uh, $250 or $300 a month, you know, $10 a day, uh, they get an offer. Uh, and the offer may even come down through your uh, superior uh, that, you know, you take – you can double your salary uh, by being on the take and just turning your back and allowing these things to happen. Or we know where your daughter goes to school. <laughs> you know, we um, – uh, we know what time uh, you leave your house every morning and we'll kill you. Um, so it's pretty you – know, the, the, the police don't feel supported within their own institutions. They don't have any place else to go even if they want to be honest. And it's just easier to just take the money and turn your back. That's that's mostly how it happens. Now control over a local like a municipal police force uh, or you know whatever military contingent is there, that's, uh, that's a real prize for an organized crime group to have. That means – you know, keep in mind, we're talking migrants, but this is where probably about three quarters of cocaine coming from the Andes goes right through the Mexico-Guatemala border zone. Same thing. You just turn your back. Um, that's a lot of money going around. Um, if you control that uh, municipality's police, I mean, you can move a lot of that product and get quite wealthy quite quickly. Um, transshipment of, of migrants, transshipment, of course, of, of, of drugs is – transshipment of drugs is way more uh, profitable than actually producing drugs. Right. So, I mean, at the local level, there are a lot of, of these, like, sort of perverse incentives to keep the, like, institutions the way that they are right now and the, and the or, or, like, the relationships with organized crime together. Yeah, I mean, it goes down to the fact that police forces are not professionally trained. Uh, police academies are where they exist are a new phenomenon. It's a low-status job. It's a low-paying job. There's very little probability that you will be investigated or punished if you do um, go corrupt because the judicial system is equally weak and equally penetrated by organized crime. So before jumping into these solutions, I, I have one more question about um, one, of the, one of the problems here. And I'm just kind of curious if, if race is one of the driving forces because I know a lot of the Central American migrants, especially from Guatemala, tend to be indigenous Whereas, you know, the Mexican population, especially as you move further north, isn't as indigenous. So is there any element of, of race that's pushing uh, the, like sort of crackdown on migrants or is that um, like an autonomous issue? No, race is definitely a factor, um, although it's probably not as, as predominant as it would be in the United States. Um, you know, the Mexicans will, will test people who look 
Central Americans sometimes, as you said, have more are more indigenous in aspect. Algunas veces, but sometimes the Mexicans in the north don't treat the Guatemalans in the south well. No, even in the south. In the south, they tell you, no, you're not from here. It's like here. It's like this everywhere. There are good and bad people. They saw you don't look like you're from here. You don't have papers. You're not from here, although you have the same skin color and speak the same language. And speak the same language. It's the same with Guatemala and El Salvador. If you see a person from El Salvador, you ask them, "What are you doing here? You're not from here. Go back to your country." It's the same in Mexico. I think when you get further north,、uh, there's a big area of sort of、uh, cargo train junctions、uh, in in Mexico State, north of Mexico City, where you would stand out much more if you're Central American, and and there.、Uh, Uh, all of the Central Americans who pass through there just try to get through there as quickly as possible because the population really hates、uh, Central American migrants. They think they're a nuisance. That happens also,、uh, uh, up, as you said, up near the U.S.-Mexico border, where where people are much more、uh, much much more mestizo, much less indigenous. I, I really agree with what he's saying here about the idea that you know race is certainly a factor in what's going on here, especially because of indigenous identity. People in Mexico who are, you know, Mayan or Aztec, and people who are also, you know, indigenous in Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador, they don't really identify with the countries they're in. You'll see a lot of times where Mayan people in Mexico will actually live separate from the cities, and they'll kind of see the cities as like oppressors, kind of more related to like a conquistador, you know. And a lot of this has to do with the idea of race and and like whiteness. Because a lot of the people, you know, Mexico in itself, you know, has always been traditionally more of a, a white country than、uh, Guatemala or you know the countries in the Northern Triangle. And so, getting back to one of the major themes that we talked about of of corruption within law enforcement agencies, I asked Mr. Isaacson if there are any short-term solutions to diminish the. Level of corruption between law enforcement agencies and the gangs that is often driving these、uh, migrants from their Central American countries. The best short-term、uh, solution, really, is to expand access for、uh, people who seek asylum.、Um, if you are facing a, a strong likelihood of death or torture in your country, you have to get out. It doesn't make sense that you necessarily have to a get out and b then travel. Uh, more than a thousand miles to the United States,、uh, Mexico is your, your your first place where you're safe, and, and there has to be expanded access to asylum in both countries.、Um, that has been happening. UNHCR has UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has a、uh, presence in in Chiapas,、uh, and it、uh, has been working with Mexican authorities to expand their capacity to accept people who、uh, seek asylum. They've even、uh, been making it possible for people to. Uh, you know, get places to live, and 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 while they await asylum decisions, some help with employment,、um, they they expected to have the capacity to、um, accommodate asylum for 25,000 Central Americans this year,、um, up from 8,000 last year and about 4,000 the year before that.、Um, I'm not sure they're actually going to get that many asylum seekers because there has been a decline、uh, this year, maybe thanks to Mr. Trump,、uh, but at least that capacity is there, and 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 they they. You know, need need to help them be secure in this short term,、um, and at least、uh, find a way to meet basic needs.、Um, you know, there's there's 
every country in the world has a responsibility to accept people who would um, be killed if they were forced to return. And, and that's your immediate short term. Mm-hmm. And then, and then long, long term, it, it seems to me that, you know, the biggest problem is first you have to deal with the large scale drug and human trafficking related violence. So how do you how do you prevent that at a systemic level that would, you know, eventually drive some longer term solutions to the humanitarian crisis? Um, it's it's a combination of a few things. Obviously, we already talked about improving your security and justice institutions, and that's the bedrock. You've got to always be doing that and, 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 a, and, and, and frankly, spending a lot of money on it because uh, ultimately all roads here, whether it's organized crime or just simply protecting people from threats, it all goes through the justice system and it all goes through the civilian police. Um, you start there. But, you know, ultimately you've got in all of these countries a – large segment of the population between the ages of like 15 and 30 who are neither in school nor employed. And you, so you've got to do a lot more, put a lot more uh, resources into education and employment creation. Um, if you're not doing that, I mean, you're, you're not going to be a viable country anyway in the 21st century. Um, but you've, you've got to get at that. Um, uh, oh, I should mention under the judicial part, obviously, uh, fighting corruption and reducing corruption, the prevalence of corruption where, uh, you know, the majority of people polled in, in Mexico in the Central American Triangle can say that they or someone they know had to pay a bribe to a policeman in the last year. That's outrageous and has to stop. Um, and I guess the other is at the community level, especially in some of the most dangerous neighborhoods, you've got churches, you've got parents groups. Uh, you've got um, other charities and simply uh, concerned citizens who um, are trying to uh, establish their own violence prevention initiatives. And that can be anything from activities for youth to street lights at night to engaging with police on community policing um, to, you know, just anything that, that causes neighbors to work together on a project and get to know each other so that when something happens, they uh, are there to respond. Um, community level violence prevention initiatives are, are a key element of this, especially in urban areas. Mm-hmm. And so my last question sort of deals with perceptions of uh, from, from Americans in the U.S. on like migration and the flow of migrants. And, you know, a lot of people are fixated on, on our, on the U.S.'s southern border. But What's the what's the importance of investigating and reporting on Mexico's southern border as as you've done you know since two thousand fourteen and and beyond? Um, a, a lot of the importance is simply humanitarian. Uh, if we're not doing this research and uh, finding out what the motivations are and what the routes are and what's happening, uh, the myth that these people are mostly economic migrants who should be immediately sent back will propagate here in the United States and people will be deported. Uh, to situations where they could be killed, um, uh, including children. Um, I think it, an- another part of it is, you know, it's a big untold story, um, the extent to which Mexican organized crime and related corruption is actually getting people uh, killed, raped, and robbed inside Mexico. And we all need, be, need to be, uh, we as, as concerned citizens, Mexican human rights groups, Mexican judicial authorities, and the U.S. government need to be putting more pressure on Mexico to c- cut that out to stop that and, and adopt a different approach. Um, but yeah, I mean, and ultimately, you know, I guess our, my, my response to the over-focus on the U.S.-Mexico border is that this is all one phenomenon from the dangerous neighborhoods of Honduras or, or, or Salvador all the way up to um, 
you know, the neighborhoods where these people settle and then often face the same gang and insecurity problems here or where they're dealing with ICE. Um, it's uh, a story of, you know, violence, exclusion, a recurrence, a constant recurrence to um, police and military and punitive tactics all the way through. Um, and a, an avoidance of doing the stuff that would actually work, even though it is harder and more expensive. Um, and every step of the way, uh, from the dangerous neighborhoods to the train lines, to the migrant shelters, to the dangerous routes through Mexico, uh, to the treacherous routes uh, once you get across the U.S. border, where a lot of people actually die of exposure or hypothermia, uh, to the neighborhoods in, in the United States where you know people are looking out for ICE or looking out for their local branch of MS-13 or dealing with that. I mean, that's... It's, it's all one phenomenon, and focusing on one aspect or one link in the chain doesn't really make sense. So I want to end the episode here with one last quote from the interview I had with the Guatemalan migrant and his family. And you know, what I really like about it is, after going back and forth between Guatemala and Mexico, Mexico and the U.S., they were still able to find some sort of solitude in their lives. This one doesn't need to be translated. On that note, we'll end the semester. I want to thank everyone for tuning into the Global Inquirer. We really appreciate all your support, from listening to the episodes to coming out to the live event. We really love hearing your feedback. If you missed any episodes this semester, you can go back on our website, SoundCloud, or iTunes and check them out. You can give us a rating on iTunes and comment. Uh, Tell us what you think about the podcast. And we look forward to starting back up next semester. We'll see you then.